Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Adapia Dorico and Daniel Coca. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. This is Adapia Dorico. And today it is my pleasure to introduce you to Mark Roderick. In his own words, Mark describes himself as a very boring corporate and securities lawyer at Flaster Greenberg PC in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Since the Jobs Act of 2012, he spent all of his time in the crowdfunding space and today is considered one of the leading crowdfunding and fintech lawyers in the U.S. He writes for the widely read blog crowdfundingattorney.com, which provides readers with a wealth of legal and practical information for portals and issuers. He also speaks at numerous crowdfunding events across the country and represents industry participants across the country and around the world. Mark, you have been in crowdfunding, in real estate, in multiple sectors, fintech, finance for many, many decades. And both Dan and I know you and have known you for many years. You and I were first connected in the beginning days of crowdfunding. Sometimes when I think about that and I talk about when I speak to people, I say, you know, I've been around for a long time and it's really only been like five or six years that online investing and the ability for people to receive funding and to make investments into alternatives that were previously only available to VCs or angels or just this whole other segment of people, um, it's really hasn't been that long, but it feels like a lifetime. And you've been in it from the legal and highly technical perspective. So um, we really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about your perspective, your experience, your stories, and to help our listeners understand what crowdfunding is, how it relates to real estate, how it affects their ability to invest, and if it's, a, if it's something that they should be considering um, when diversifying their portfolios. So Welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm delighted to be here with both of you. I do know you both very well, have for a long time. We're all sort of old timers, as you say, in this crowdfunding business, which uh, only means you've been around for five or six or, or seven years. But we, we have gone through a lot. The industry has changed a lot. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit, because I know you as Mark Roderick, in crowdfunding. Um, what's a little bit of your background and how did that background get you and how did you become interested in crowdfunding? Well, you know, do you want me to go into my previous lives or sort of start when I was born as Mark Roderick? <laughs> uh, I'll start with, I'll start with, 
with the current life. You know, in my next life, I want to come back as SEC commissioner, I think. But in the in my current life, so I have uh, been practicing law for a long time. And during that time, uh, I have always represented entrepreneurs in everything they have done, you know, from a business slash legal perspective, including a lot of real estate entrepreneurs. And whether they're starting new companies or technology or buying and selling companies, all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the things that you do um, when you're representing entrepreneurs is you help them raise money, right? Because entrepreneurs are always looking for capital. That's why they call it capitalism. So that, that I've been involved in that um, sector forever. And if you have been involved in that sector, and I know both of you have, you remember what it was like before crowdfunding. So very time consuming, very difficult. You know, you raise money by calling people that you know, your lawyer, accountant, your friends, your aunt, your niece. And you have all these sort of disconnected, opaque private networks where you're trying to raise capital. Very, very inefficient, lots of middlemen. So that was the system that I was used to, just like everyone else in that space. So now I'm going to answer your question. So here comes the Jobs Act on the horizon, the 2012 Jumpstart Our Businesses Act. And in short, what that act allowed for the first time in American history is it allowed entrepreneurs to raise money online. And if you had lived through, um, you know, the previous 15 or 20 years, the sort of something that was impossible to ignore was the internet, the internet growing all around us and sort of taking over one chunk of our lives after another from, you know, I was one of the first people to buy a book on Amazon. Hey, what about this? And to book a flight on Expedia and on and on and on. And by 2012, unless you hadn't been paying attention, you had seen what the internet does when it comes to industries. It always does the same thing, regardless of industry. It connects buyers and sellers directly, and it eliminates, bypasses middlemen. And by doing that, um, it makes markets much more efficient. It's very cruel to middlemen like you know Barnes and & Noble and, and all the rest. But it does that in every industry that it touches. So here's the JOBS Act. What is the JOBS Act doing? It is saying, internet, come transform the capital formation industry in this country, which is a multi-trillion dollar a year industry. So internet, now you can connect buyers and sellers, meaning investors on the one hand and entrepreneurs on the other hand and all those middlemen suddenly are not nearly as important as they thought they were and having so having seen what the internet had done in in all these other industries whether you know serious things like retail or or matchmaking you know some very high percentage of all relationships these days or come from online services you know, the internet is just sort of taking over one aspect of our lives after another. And I realized 
that it was about to do that to the capital formation industry. And that's what crowdfunding is. It's just the internet. Um, I always say, fortunately, there are tons of legal rules because otherwise you wouldn't have to hire me and how could I earn a living? But at its heart, it's just the internet. So when I saw that, I said, this is gonna be super cool, challenging, exciting, great for the economy. We'll talk more about that later. But that's sort of a very long answer of how I got into the crowdfunding business. Yeah, that's amazing because you're seeing it from this like legal um, perspective. I was sort of doing quote unquote crowdfunding starting in about 2009 when I was working with entrepreneurs more on the creative side. I was doing Kickstarter and Indiegogo campaigns. So I understood the donation and the reward based um, uh, model of crowdfunding because it was helping a different type of entrepreneur in a way, um, maybe like the side project entrepreneur, just the creatives, which had, who had always had a really hard time, um, you know, making a business or making a living with their art essentially. Um, but because I had and have a deep finance background, when I heard that the jobs act was coming up, I thought, Oh, how amazing I could turn fans into shareholders which of course didn't really happen at scale until 2016. But uh, I do remember and when um, I heard for the first time about real estate crowdfunding and I thought, how amazing, maybe I can buy this like big house on the canals in Venice, uh, Venice, California, and turn it into like my house, but also a, like a co-working space and I'll get all these investors to buy it because I can't afford a $4 million house. It's probably worth like 30 now. But um, at, the, at the same time, like that also wasn't possible because of the regulations in the real estate space, which wouldn't allow crowdfunding of a residential property. Um, so anyway, like for me, like you said, like if, if you were awake and alive and aware, you knew crowdfunding was coming, but it wasn't always able to function exactly in the capital raising way that maybe we all hoped for in the beginning. Has that been your experience? I mean, you've seen it from the more the legal perspective. I saw it as a person that wanted to raise um, money, but kept running into regulations. Well, you know, just, just to show you how much foresight I had, I, I mean, I was one of those wise people who said Kickstarter was never going to work. Um, <laughs> so, Yes. I mean, I, I have seen it grow. So back in the earliest days, just talking about real estate crowdfunding for a second, as you know, in the earliest days, people were crowdfunding, um, raising money for a single family fix and flip. And they might raise $70,000 or $105,000, you know, six figures. And that wasn't very long ago, you know, six, five or six years ago. A couple months ago, one of my clients did a $14 million equity raise on a single project. So I, I, I have to say that once the alarm bell, or not the alarm bell, once the light went off in my brain, when I saw the Jobs Act and I said, this is just the internet, it doesn't surprise me. It hasn't surprised me at all that we're seeing this growth bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because that's what the internet 
does. It's not, you know, people would ask me in the beginning, I'd get interviewed, is this a fad? You know, do you think crowdfunding is a fad? Normally, you'd get asked that question by middlemen who's hoping the answer is yes, <laughs> you know, but, but no, it's not because it is, it's, it's just the internet and I, it's going to continue to grow and sort of knock down obstacles because you have this irresistible force. You, you know, you have this, these two magnets, the investor who has never before had access to these great deals, and you have the entrepreneur who really needs the capital. And that is an irresistible uh, market force that, that will continue. It's not going to grow forever, but it's gonna, there's a huge growth path ahead of it, and that's going to continue for quite some time. So my first thought when the Jobs Act came out, Mark, was actually the opposite, which was, okay, investors, watch out. There are going to be a lot of people out there that are going to be trying to get your money online, and all of these transactions are falling outside the scope of you know, the regulatory bodies that are typically you know, managing you know, these types of, of investments, right? And you know, it's not that you know, all real estate transactions were registered with the SEC, right? But the reality is that even unregistered deals are, are usually pretty closely following, you know, the SEC forms, right? And so now we're in this kind of wild, wild west world where there just really aren't the same level of regulations. And so when you kind of take a step back, you know, what are the things that are kind of built into, you know, whether it's the Jobs Act and, and kind of understanding that not all line investments are regulated by the Jobs Act. There are some that you know, kind of fall outside that scope. But, you know, what are the regulations that are in place that actually protect investors? That's a great question. And I'm going to answer that question, if I can, in two ways. I don't know if that if you're old enough, you guys aren't old enough. But if you remembered Monty Python on a show, they said on a serious like Sunday morning talk show, he said, I'm going to answer that question in two ways. First, in my regular voice and then in a high pitched squeal. But that's not what I'm going to do here. So, um the first answer is maybe the more surprising, and that is, by and large, in crowdfunding, big picture question, the laws, there are no special laws that protect investors, okay? And surprise, surprise, there are, in general, in buying securities, there are no special rules that protect investors from losing money. So you can buy into the Uber IPO or the, the WeSpace IPO, and there's absolutely no law that protects you from losing your money. There are laws that protect you from, you know, the sponsor lying to you. But the law itself is not what has made real estate crowdfunding successful. What seemed likely to me, and has turned out to be the case when the Jobs Act was passed, that it would be market forces that would protect investors. So that as a general rule, these offerings, as both of you know extremely well, are, are generally not conducted by a one-off sponsor. Sponsor puts up a website, I'm trying to buy a house on the canal in Venice, California, can you give me money? That's generally not how they're done. They are done through portals, websites. You know, a portal is just an unregulated website that picks and chooses, the portal picks and chooses which real estate offerings to have on its site. 
And so that, that portal is the market force. It's, it's, it's the result of market forces, investors needing a trusted middleman. So that's where almost all, not all, but a very large portion of real estate crowdfunding happens um, at portals uh, which play the role of picking and choosing uh, and, and certainly weeding out you know, fraud. So there's been so far in crowdfunding, fortunately, almost zero fraud. Now, that's one answer. The high-pitched squeal answer is it depends on which flavor of crowdfunding we're talking about. As you guys know, there are generally three flavors. One is for accredited investors only, and there, there's no legal protection. Wild, wild west is exactly what it is. And then there's Regulation A, and the protection is you have to get approved by the SEC. And then there's Title III crowdfunding, which has a zillion um, little regulatory rules um, that are supposed to protect investors. What that really means is making sure investors know how risky these investments are. So it's really the market that protects investors. And, and so far, you have to say, the market's doing a pretty good job of that. So I'm curious, because you have a lot of clients in the space, and you've been doing this for a long time, and you were talking about portals and, and being selective. Um, what's the difference between a platform or a portal that functions more as a marketplace that is maybe licensing software to sponsors are they being as selective as a platform or company who is doing the due diligence themselves um, and not just offering a platform for a sponsor, but rather doing a lot of the work on behalf of an investor and showing up with an opportunity that they vetted for an investor? Yeah, perfect. Well, yeah, that I mean, you just said it. There are two different kinds. And personally, I far prefer the latter than the former. So in the real world, real names, you know, the two big, uh, very reputable real estate crowdfunding sites, CrowdStreet and RealCrowd, and they both vet sponsors and they both vet deals. And I think they do a terrific job doing it. And if I'm a first-time investor, certainly, that's the only place not just those two, but others like them. It's the only place I'm going to invest my first crowdfunding dollars at a site that is actually vetting deals. I, I'm not just going to Adapia's standalone site for her $4 million house in, in Venice, California, because who the heck knows? I don't even know the house exists. I don't know that Adapia exists. I don't know that any of it is true. The other sites, so... In the Title III crowdfunding world, we on like WeFunder and StartEngine, um, I know at least StartEngine began vetting deals, but I don't think they vet deals anymore, or certainly not to a very large extent. And say, so they do become, you use the word, you know, marketplace. I use the term bulletin board sites, where sort of if you pay your entrance fee, you get listed. And that is certainly one business model. Um, I think from an investor's point of view, there is, <laughs> I'm very skeptical 
I mean, I'm very skeptical of investing through bulletin board sites for the simple reason that who the heck knows? I mean, I have heard about, for example, had this conversation, I have this conversation with a whole lot of folks. There was a offering at least one for a perpetual motion machine, you know, title three crowdfunding, perpetual motion machine. So this thing really hadn't been vetted. And yeah, it, if you're an investor going on one of those sites, I think you have to be very skeptical. So I think it's much better for the market, you know, the, the sites that are, that are doing vetting, that are doing serious vetting. I, I think that's, that's the way for the market to grow. Now, some of your listeners um, may be saying, Mark, but you said the internet gets rid of middlemen. Aren't portals just middlemen? And the answer is yes, you got me. Uh, it is true. Portals do act as a trusted middleman uh, in crowdfunding transactions. It's just that they're the only ones. Um, there's only one middleman as opposed to a whole bunch. And, and I'll just make this point again about middlemen and the financial world, which is what we're talking about. Building wealth. The more middlemen there are taking a little piece out of every deal, the lower your total return, right? Wall Street is located in Manhattan. Well, all of Manhattan, from the Hudson River to the East River, when you think about it, it's just middlemen. So for most Americans, our wealth goes to Manhattan in the form of you know, going through mutual funds and ETFs and all that. And that's where all the middlemen are. So this terrific opportunity that crowdfunding represents is to bypass <laughs> <clears throat> the Isle of Manhattan with all those middlemen taking little chunks out of our wealth so our wealth can grow and grow and grow. So a quick legal question for you, Mark, and you chatted a little bit about the different types of eligible investors you know, into these types of, of transactions. And, you know, let's specifically talk about the accredited investor requirement. And so you know, for those people who aren't familiar, you know, there are certain income or, or net worth requirements that uh, investors need to meet in order to invest in certain types of, of transactions. What's your thought generally about you know, the accredited investor requirement? Meaning, you know, do you think it actually accomplishes the goal of you know, making sure sophisticated investors are investing into these types of projects? Well, um, I know, Dan, you asked me a sort of leading question. Um, the The answer, so just for background for your listeners, this concept of accredited investor is baked into our securities laws and has been for a very long time. So U.S. securities laws were developed by President Franklin Roosevelt after the Great Depression. One of the reasons for the Great Depression was that American capital markets absolutely stunk. They were not transparent. They were filled with fraud. They didn't protect investors and we live in a capitalist society, and so for our economy to be healthy, we need healthy uh, capital markets. So Roosevelt um, and Congress got together and created all of our securities laws back in the 1930s that still exist. And I, I go into that brief history to say that the concept of wealthy investors versus non-wealthy investors has been baked into our system from the beginning. 
sort of a foundational tenet is that wealthy people can protect themselves. They can hire expensive lawyers and accountants and advisors. I think there's also always been kind of a concept, well, wealthy people are smarter than non-wealthy people. Now, we all know that's not true. But in any case, this has been baked into our system from the beginning. It was kind of put into technical terms as accredited investors, meaning wealthy people, back in 1982. But it's always been there. And the thing is, it's kind of worked. It's worked pretty well. Let's put it that way. And so, while the definition of accredited investor is subject to criticism from both ends, meaning there's lots of wealthy people who aren't sophisticated or smart at all, there's lots of non-wealthy people who are very, very sophisticated, and so we're always hoping that the definition can change and become more accommodating. The concept that people with more money can protect themselves seems to have worked pretty darn well. And the only, the only thing I will add is the current definition of what wealthy means, meaning what an accredited investor is, dates back to 1982, a long time ago, almost 40 years ago. The definition hasn't changed. It was $200,000 of income now. It's $200,000 of income then. I think I got those reversed. But the point is, of course, inflation has you know, really bitten into those numbers. So $200,000 today is nothing close to what it was back in 1982. And yet the SEC hasn't changed it. And I think the reason it hasn't is the markets seem to be working. There are not a lot of widows and orphans being cheated. The SEC has kind of let it be for the time being. We're hoping for an updated, more modern, more accommodating definition of accredited investor. But as a general rule, the accredited definition concept, like all of U.S. securities laws, have, have worked pretty darn well. You know, we have both the most stringent and the most vibrant and healthiest and robust capital markets in the world. Yeah, that's, that's really good, uh, helpful background. And you know, I think it would also be interesting, and you know, this is something that you and I, Mark, maybe talk about a bit more, particularly as, as we kind of have conversations about you know, real estate syndicating and whatnot. But you know, could you just give a real high-level primer for you know, someone who might not know about all this stuff about you know, what are the important regulations that kind of go into into this space and then you know what kind of changes do you see from a regulatory perspective you know that are potentially on the horizon well yeah this space if if we define it as sort of online capital formation as we mentioned briefly and as you guys know very well there are three whole different sets of rules depending on the three flavors of crowdfunding one is for accredited investors only we sometimes call that Title II crowdfunding or Rule 506C in Charlie. And of course, I'm not going to go into all the detail, but actually, fortunately, there's almost no detail about Rule 506C because there's no rules. It's wild, wild west. It's for accredited investors only. As I said in my little speech before, 
you know, the laws accredited investors can protect themselves. So when you're doing a syndication, you're trying to raise money for your real estate deal, as long as you're willing to accept checks, take money only from accredited investors, you can pretty much do anything you want from the SEC's perspective. You can't lie, you know, you can't cheat, you can't withhold important information. But other than that, wild, wild west. And not surprisingly, that is by far the most popular kind of crowdfunding. Another flavor, Regulation A or Title IV, it's like a sort of mini initial public offering, mini IPO. You have to put together a thick book, meaning you have to pay someone like me to put together a thick book and submit it to the SEC and they look at it and comment and you change it and revise it and you go back and forth. But if you do that and you get approval, it means you can raise money from both accredited and non-accredited. And I don't expect any significant changes to either Rule 506C or Regulation A in the foreseeable future. Nothing significant. Around the edges, I don't know what they'll do, but nothing significant. The third kind, third flavor, we call Title III crowdfunding or Regulation Crowdfunding or Regulation CF. This is kind of the new animal. There's never been anything like it in American securities laws. Lots of rules. Uh, very small limits on how much a company can raise, very, very small limits on how much investors can invest, and then a ton of other regulatory uh, requirements. You know, it can only be done online. You can't even use FedEx. Um, rules, limits about advertising, all, all kinds of rules, and probably also not surprisingly, that is not a very healthy market. It just hasn't, it's not a very big market. Some good companies, a lot of bad companies. That flavor is uh, more ripe for some kind of regulatory flexibility. Personally, I, I think the most important change would be to increase the amount investors are allowed to invest in those deals because the amounts they're allowed to invest today are so tiny that a company even raising, say, three or $400,000 has to find so many investors to make up that pool. Um, it's just very, very difficult. So I hope that rule will be changed, although, you know, don't, don't hold your breath. I, I don't think anything's going to happen anytime, anytime soon. Uh, but there are these three kinds, and they e each do have their own set of rules. So Mark, when you talked about Reg C or the accredited investor and how it's the wild, wild west and they're generally unprotected because of, um, let's call it a false paradigm that says if you make a certain amount of money, you can afford to lose it or you should know better, whatever, you know, whatever the sort of thinking could possibly be behind that. Um, how does one, how does an investor uh, protect themselves? I mean, accredited or not, because honestly, yeah, there, could, there are, let's say, more um, regulations or laws or protections in place for, an un, for a non-accredited investor. But at the end of the day, we as investors have to be self-responsible about anything that we're putting our money into. So how does an investor protect 
their money? Um, how do they get informed? What kinds of tips or questions or insights could you give somebody who, who might be listening to this and going, oh my God, I'm not protected. Um, how do I protect myself? Yeah. Well, the first answer is, um, again, if, if we're talking, <clears throat> talking about real estate in particular, in particular, go to a site that does the vetting. That's the that's probably 85% of what an invest of all the things that an investor can do to protect herself. I think you said himself, but I'm going to say herself because that's what Thank we you. should say. Okay. <laughs> Thank so, you for that. <laughs> so um, that is about at least 85% of what an investor can do to, to protect herself. It um, go to a site that vets deals. A second step, which is similar to the first, invest, if this is your first time investing, invest in a repeat issuer, a repeat sponsor. Notice none of the things I'm saying have any legal component. That's It's, it's market forces that protect investors best. So you go to the site that vets deals, you find a sponsor that has done two other deals on that site that have been successful. So now you're probably at about 95% of everything everything you can do. And then I would I just have to say you should read the documents and you should understand the documents. And you know you know what percentage of your listeners are going to follow that advice? Zero. But I have to say it. I write the documents. So they should read the documents, make sure they understand the documents. And then I, I guess the other thing I would say, also not really a, a legal uh, protection, see if there are other people investing alongside you that are experienced. I've, I've always thought, actually, getting back to the accredited investor thing, that the, the way to get the best of both worlds for accredited and non-accredited investors is there should be some kind of rule that says, well, if a certain number of unrelated accredited investors participate in a certain deal, then non-accredited investors should be allowed to participate. Because if the accredited investors are either sophisticated themselves or have hired those expensive lawyers and accountants and consultants to advise them on good deals. That's the market. That's the crowd selecting a good deal. And so non-accredited should be able to invest in it also. But anyway, so my fourth, my fourth answer is see if you can invest alongside people whose, whose judgment you trust. I, I could go into like make sure the operating agreement says this and this, but I think that's all subsumed within the first things. You know, the portals are looking at the operating agreement. Your fellow investors are looking at the operating agreement. So if you follow those simple rules, I think that's the way to do it. And keep in mind, the real estate market has been going up for more than 10 years so crowdfunding, real estate crowdfunding has a super good record so far, right? I mean, it's been hard to lose money in real estate for the last 10 years. Just bear in mind the macroeconomic observation that real estate markets go down at some point. Whether we're there yet, man, if, if I knew that, 
I suppose I could be a wealthy person very, very quickly. But the real estate market is going to go down, isn't it, Dan? I think, I think you told me it was going to go down at some point. <laughs> well, I think that's a good segue into, into the kind of next part of this conversation, right? And so uh, you know, there was a, a former Supreme Court justice, Justice Brandeis, who I think is credited with saying that uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? And so a lot of people think, you know, we're at or near the peak in real estate and a lot of asset classes, there's potentially a, a recession looming. You know, what happens to some of these deals you know, from a, a legal perspective, you know, when, when things do go bad, right? And, and now some of maybe the, you know, the mishaps or, or what happens or, or what happened in the past, or, excuse me, you know, from a pure disclosure perspective, you know, the, the, whether they be misrepresentations or what have you, those get kind of pushed to light, you know, when things aren't going well, whereas when things are going well, you know, no one, no one really cares as, as they're you know, checking their bank account. Right. So yeah. What are your, what are your thoughts for the coming market and, and what are your thoughts about how that, you know, impacts real estate crowdfunding generally? Well, um, you know, I'm, as you know, from our conversations, I'm being totally truthful when I say I, I don't know what the market outlook is. It's just that the market's been going up for a long, long time. But the, from a lawyer's perspective, yes, when the market goes down, not if, but when the market goes down, we are going to see a lot of things shake out. As, as you've noted, it doesn't matter what like the legal documents say, as long as everyone's making money, they, legal documents just go in a desk drawer, I'm dating myself, they go in a PDF file and get lost on your desktop somewhere. But when the deal goes sideways or south, um, then people start pulling those documents out and, and reading them. And I, I think we will be surprised and in some cases shocked about what those documents say and don't say. You know, they're, we're going to find out they don't say things that they should have, and they say things they, they shouldn't, I'm sure. And there are going to be lawsuits. There are going to be a lot of lawsuits, because when people lose money, usually they're not happy about it. And um, they're, they know a lawyer, and things just kind of happen. So it is going to, we're going to see a period of, of some turmoil, I think, when the when the real estate market goes down. You are also going to see, I think, a shakeout of high-quality sponsors from less high-quality sponsors, because one of the things that makes high-quality sponsors high-quality is their ability to survive downturns, just based on their industry knowledge, their flexibility, and so forth. So you're going to there, there is right in every market, in every downturn, in every industry. I'd say there's, there's always a return to quality when things, when things get bad. Those, those markets just have a way of shaking out um, lower quality deals, lower quality sponsors. We are then going to see suddenly everyone's going to say, "Boy, we need higher quality stuff in these crowdfunding deals," like. I can say that today from a legal perspective. Man, I, I wish the legal documents were better in all these deals. And everyone's, who wants to hear that? You know, the market's going up. People are investing money. We don't want to hear anything about that. But in, once a downturn happens, there will be some uh, reforms in the, in the industry. I, it, it's, 
For me, the real interesting question is and has been, what happens to the crowdfunding portals? So they make money doing deals. I, I personally don't know how they will manage through a downturn period. I, I don't know, you know, I think right now, you tell me if I'm wrong, because both of you probably know as well as or better than I do. Right now, they're sort of, you know, single revenue source businesses. They make money from sponsors by doing deals. What is the revenue source if the deal flow dries up? I mean, you guys maybe have answers to that question, but it's been a tough business. You know, Realty Shares, which I might have mentioned is the third successful, real big successful real estate platform, were it not for the fact that they went out of business six months ago. So they, they somehow managed not even to generate enough revenue in an up market. So I'm, I mean, what do you guys think about the real estate portals in our next down market? Well, I think it's a really good question. And I think the first thing I would say is, I think we're still in a vetting period when it comes to sponsors, platforms, et cetera. You, know, you need the downturn in order you know, for the cream to rise you know, to the top, so to speak. And you know, I think we're probably approaching a period of time where there are you know, less new entrants at the platform level, and maybe we start to see some consolidation. But, you know, at the same time, I think we may see some new, you know, bigger players who are trying to kind of get out, you know, into the accredited investor space, expose the, you know, their, uh, their deals to a larger audience. Uh, So I guess it remains to be seen. But I think the one thing that's come away from all this is that, you know, people want to be investing in real estate. People want to be investing in alternatives. And, you know, now they have that option to do so. And, you know, they've shown in, in great numbers that it's something they, they want to do. And so, you know, to answer your, your question, you know, if you're a group that makes money when uh, people invest in real estate deals, if real estate deals aren't happening, like you're not going to make money. And I think that's the, the takeaway from the realty share story right, is make sure your company is internally capitalized in a way that doesn't force you to do as many deals as you possibly can in order to break even, right? And I think one of the founding principles at Alpha as we've you know, capitalized our company has been, you know, let's back ourselves with real estate professionals who understand what we're doing. Let's keep our burn, you know, very, very low and let's grow at a sustainable pace. And in a world where, you know, six months pass and we haven't done a deal, you know, it's not the end of the world, right? You know, for example, at Alpha, we didn't do a deal for the entire first quarter of 2019. It was a product of a bunch of things. And one is just, you know, deal flow is deal flow and it comes when it when it does. And if it's not there, you, you can't force it. You know, interest rates were at, at that point a little less predictable and just made financing these projects a, a bit more challenging. Uh, and so, you know, we kind of took a step back and said, okay, like, let's make sure we're capitalized you know, for at least the next three years, let's assume we don't do a deal for three years and make sure we've got that much money in the bank. So at least we'll exist. And, you know, we move forward saying, let's just be patient. Let's pick deals that, that work. And that's the challenge when you're backed by a venture capitalist and that, you know, you're often, you know, forced with that, Hey, I need to grow at all costs mentality. And, 
you know, it doesn't matter what's happening in the multifamily asset class or the mobile manufactured home asset class. If that's what I do, I need to raise money there because that's what pays the bills. That's what keeps the lights on. And so, you know, for me, I think at the end of the day, as I think about it, the groups that will be around, you know, are going to be the groups that uh, have best aligned their own company incentives with that of their investors. And, and at the end of the day, all these people have flooded into crowdfunding and these you know, kind of online private real estate syndications. At the end of the day, you know, people still want the same thing, and that's you know, investors to be around you know, for the long run. And the only way to do that, again, in my opinion, is to make sure incentives are properly aligned. You were saying that they didn't make enough revenue. It's also because they had so many expenses because it's a numbers game. So they were spending a lot of money on marketing to hit the numbers because the internet is a numbers game. You're trying to get as many people as possible from wherever you can and digital advertising and digital marketing has grown as the, you know, quote unquote, the easiest way to reach the biggest number of people. So you're trying to get the biggest audience possible and then funnel them, you know, funnel them down in multiple different ways. And that's like a big difference between that model and a private equity model. So I'm curious to know from you um, if you think there's a difference or um, what you think about like crowdfunding model versus private equity, like generally um, in your experience. Well, that's a good question. They're all, they're both part of the same ecosystem. They are uh, in some ways the crowdfunding portals um, you know are a threat to the private equity business model just as they're a threat to the um, angel investor business model because both those groups you know um, are middlemen you know angel investors are are middlemen and I don't I have some of my best friends are angel investors so I don't don't mean to be taking anything away from them but they are they're mediating right they're mediating between entrepreneurs and investors and private equity firms do the same thing they're you know there's they raise money from investors they go out and look for deals they are mediating they are middlemen and that's what crowdfunding does too and it's just that crowdfunding because it's the internet uh, casts such a much wider net in terms of both investors and deal flow that you know crowdfunding is a is a real threat it, it, and it you know in in some markets crowdfunding will win so because of the so much greater efficiencies that that the internet brings to to uh, transactions it's a socioeconomic battle which is um, one of the reasons I'm so evangelical about crowdfunding. So in that deal, I told you, you know, and I've mentioned a few times, my client raises $14 million. Well, that's great for the entrepreneur. And the three of us, you know, we always see through the entrepreneur end of the telescope because that's, that's where we work. We work for the entrepreneurs. But in that same deal, on the other end of the telescope, there's two, there were 281 investors, 281 ordinary American investors being able to participate in a deal that 
they wouldn't have been able to participate in 10 years ago because that would have been funded by the private equity guys who are funded by super wealthy families. So there, there is this, it is a socioeconomic clash. Crowdfunding is the, hopefully, the great American middle um, being able to reassert itself economically um, over the 0.01%. And, and maybe, maybe if we're lucky, make a little bit of a dent in this very unhealthy income and wealth inequality that, that we have in our system right now. So it's, they're interesting economic questions, but they're also big. They're big questions, socioeconomic. Is it crowdfunding? Is it private equity? It's, you know, Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader here. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm rooting for Luke personally. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's complex, right? It, it's like every time there's a new technology or a new opportunity, um, especially if we're on the entrepreneur side, everybody gets really excited and thinks, oh, it's going to disrupt it and it's going to change it and the incumbents are going to disappear. You know, we're, we're going to take our like laser sword or whatever those things are called and we're going to cut them up to pieces. Um, and what really seems to happen is that it coexists and it doesn't. Yes it doesn't really take it away. I, I remember um, in the early days of real estate crowdfunding when I was at, at Patch of Land that the, the sort of theme around the industry was that um, the crowdfunding platforms would make it so that it would be the only way to raise capital. And it would, it would actually like make all of the, the people looking, all the sponsors come under essentially like one roof you know, because it was so fragmented that, oh, here we are, we're going to corral everybody. And it is not how it worked. It was just another fragmentation of the same fragmentation. It just had a slightly different flavor because it used some technology and it used the Jobs Act. But like anybody can use the Jobs Act and anybody can build, a, you know, a back end, so to speak, right? Um, no, that's super generalized. But, you know, it, it just everything co- exists. It's not like one thing comes in and actually completely takes it over and what previously existed um, is fully swallowed up. Yeah, in general, that is true. And, you know, now in some cases in, in, for example, Amazon, I mean, Amazon just came in and became the, right, the 800 pound gorilla of American retailing starting from zero. That is generally not how markets change. It's like when universes collide, you think of, oh, there's going to be this big collision, boom, boom, boom. But in reality, the stars in the universe are so far apart that they just, they kind of just pass through each other. They in, influence one another with their gravitational fields, but they don't, there's not a, a big collision. So one way to look at it, if we're talking about, you know, economics is the market, the capital formation market, it's not a monolith. It's got a lot of stratification. And what the internet does is it adds efficiencies. There are some pieces, big pieces of our capital markets that are extremely efficient. Like the, the, if you're building an office building, an office tower in Manhattan or San Francisco, and you're looking for a first mortgage loan, 
that is an extremely efficient market. Everyone has access to the same information, you know, legally the documents you're going to get from all 10 big banks that bid on the deal are going to be identical. It's extremely efficient. Crowdfunding the internet has nothing to add to that market, right? There's, we're not going to have crowdfunding for first mortgage loans on $600 million office towers. At the other end of the, the spectrum, the kinds of loans you guys did at Patch of Land, extremely inefficient, right? Very, very inefficient. No one has access to information. It's fragmented. The internet has a lot to add to that market to make it much more efficient. And as you go up the scale, um, the markets become more and more efficient in the internet and therefore crowdfunding has less and less to add. So, you know, in what, ha what happens, the way industries often get disrupted is there's a big player and it, ha it owns the whole market. Someone comes along, some disruptor, and says, I can take a little piece of your market. I can, I can add more value to that piece, right? And the big company says, we don't care. It's just a small piece. And then either that disruptor or another one comes along and says, well, we can, dis we can take another piece of your market. And so what once looked like a monolithic market gets sliced up into different markets and over time, the overall effect is a major disruption. So I think personally, I think that's what will happen with crowdfunding. It will disrupt little pieces of big markets, but those markets are so big. I mean, the real estate finance market is so gigantically big that if crowdfunding comes in and disrupts 10 or 15% of it, that's just an enormous market. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge opportunity overall. And like you're saying, there's, uh, it's a big market. There's a lot going on, as you were talking about and Dan was saying too. I mean, right now, you know, we've seen 10 years of growth. Um, but as we all know in real estate, there's always opportunities to make money in up markets and in down markets. And just to, just to wrap up, I think one of the most important tenets, which we spoke about is an investor, even if information is presented, um, even if they, they trust whomever they're working with, it's still important for them to use the, the transparency and the efficiencies that have been brought by technology and the internet and the Jobs Act and crowdfunding to apply a lot of their own diligence and time and vetting so that they, even for themselves, are making the best possible decision. Um, because the opportunities are going to keep coming, um, even in spite of this volatility that we're in right now, there's always going to be opportunities. And, um, you know, what you were saying, like, read the documents if you can. Um, we always make it a point that if somebody needs to know something, because we know they're not necessarily going to read the documents, that we speak to them a lot. Like, we spend a lot of time with our investors speaking to them um, to help them through that, because it took me a really long time to figure all that documentation out and I'm in finance, you know? So like there's, there's all these different mechanisms. There's like these components of like, you still have to do your due diligence. You still have to put in the time because you're investing your hard earned money, like regardless of if it's efficient and online or if it's in private equity, um, you know, behind the curtain, there's still a fundamental 
premise of knowing who you're working with, who you're investing with, and uh, to the degree possible, like, you know, read those, read those legal documents. Now, here's a thought, and I, I will, you guys can be at my advocates for this. So we all know what we mean by read, read the documents because they're super important. And, and we also know that when we say that to an investor, if the investor is looking at 10 different deals, they're going to see 10 different sets of documents, right? All different, all the, you know, maybe they're saying the same things, maybe they're not. So one of one small thing that our industry needs is they need standardized legal documents. There is no reason in the world at all why if I go on to a real crowd or a crowd street and look at four deals, why those documents should be different. It's just a, it's a um, vest, vestigial tale. It's just a, a holdover from the old days when there was no internet. So your job is to advocate for everyone every sponsor and every portal using Mark Roderick's legal documents. <laughs> they, so they're all the same. So investors, having read one set of documents, they've read them all. Now they can compare, rather than trying to figure out, well, where does this document say this? They can compare apples to apples and focus on the important thing, which is, you know, economics. I, I'm, you know, of course, I'm seeing this from a lawyer's perspective, but that is one small thing that, makes no sense from the investor's end of the telescope that they have to read 14 different versions of the same document. Everyone should use the same. And of course, because mine are the best, they should use mine. But they, they, they really should be standardized. Okay, can you pledge, for, pledge to that, advocate for that in the industry? Absolutely. And, and fortunately for us, you already drafted our legal documents. So, uh, you know, that's only Well, you bit. have the best documents <laughs> already. You're, you're far ahead of other people. Well, listen, Mark, we really appreciate you taking the time today and just kind of sharing all your insight and you know, years of knowledge with our investor base. I think people really like to you know, hear stories and, and insight from you know, folks like you have been around for a while in this space. And so thank you again for taking the time. Uh, we really, uh, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you folks. Thanks, Mark. Right, Mark, take care. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might've touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.